Welcome to Technado with Don Pizzette. Featuring sysadmin expert, Don Pizzette. Security specialist, Daniel Lowry. And Peter. Hello and welcome to Technado with Don Pizzette. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam. I'm joined as always by Don Pizzette. Don, how's it going? It is going great. You know, we got a, an exciting guest lined up. I won't uh, let the cat out of the bag yet, so I'm excited about that. And we've got our first real day of winter in Florida, so things are really shaping up for a good day. And we, we also have a second pseudo guest because we've got filling in for, for Daniel, who's probably at home playing with his new Floby. Uh, we have <laughs> Wes Bryan. Wes, how's it going? Hey, it's going great. Thanks for uh, having me here, guys. Uh, looking forward to today, today's uh, podcast. And you're growing out the hair in the back there, too. You could use oh, the Floby yeah, yeah, again. I've got, I've got my uh, not going to the hair. And cuts. you know, if you listen to the podcast last week, we mentioned the Floby completely out of the blue. Obviously, George Clooney is a listener because he posted this week that he cuts his hair with a Floby. Okay. <laughs> So. And has like his whole, like he says life. for for a long time. Yeah, that's crazy. So uh, thanks, George, for listening. We appreciate you being one yeah. of our uh, viewers. Good to see you. Tell Brad I said hi. <laughs> <laughs> and we are also joined by Jeff Mitchell, who is a cloud solutions architect at Microsoft. Jeff, how's it going? It's going well. How are you guys? Uh, doing we're, good. You're good. You're good. Yeah. 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 I don't want to speak we for all of us. We just established that, yeah. Jeff, in the beginning of the show. <laughs> I, yeah, I should have checked them first, but yeah, we're we're good apparently. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, and you you actually. Uh, found out about us from Christian Brinkhoff, who we've had on before. Are you guys on the same team or in kind of the same area? Yeah, so uh, I used to work as uh, in the one commercial partner space in the U.S., and I worked on Windows Virtual Desktop, um, uh, Azure VMware Solutions, and Server Migration or Data Center uh, Transformation. Uh, and so we worked a lot with Windows Virtual Desktop uh, in the same area. All right, cool. Well, let's get to know a little bit more about you in our first segment, Rapid Fire Questions. Who do you work for? What's new? Who are you? What's happening? What's wrong with you? All right, Jeff, in this segment, we've got five questions canned or four and some, we'll see, uh, that we're going to throw at you. And basically, you'll have one minute to answer each one. If you go too long, you will get buzzed by Peter. Oh, shoot, every week. I, I, looked, I should write that down. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> there we go. I need to uh, right. just adjust my little speech. No, yeah, it's yep. me. If you go on for one minute and seven seconds, then you will get buzzed by Peter. <laughs> we'll move on to the next question. I, get, I did it that time. Nice. So, uh, so that's the plan. We'll rotate through each of us. And I think Peter has our first question. Yeah, normally the first question is, so so what does your company do? But you're Microsoft, so we're not going to do that one. But uh, I do want to ask kind of about your, your last... more than a minute. Yeah, you, yeah. It's Xbox, basically. Um, so, so you went from a partner cloud solution architect to a cloud solution architect. So I'm curious what the difference is there, what, what that tra transition means for you. Was, was one like a, a contract position or now are you, are you, you know, officially part of Microsoft or how does that work and, and what's your role now? Yeah, great question. Um, so when I made my transition earlier in the year, um, there were some um, uh, requirements for role moves. And so I started off as a partner cloud solution architect, working with partners um, and with our field, uh, with customers. And then um, when I was making a transition to role change because of COVID-19, there was some, some uh, lock-in on the types of titles uh, that can be uh, transitioned. So uh, my actual description of what I do is more of a, a program manager, is more of a solution strategist to so think about, um, you know, uh, the area of enabling customer, uh, enabling our team on Azure um, worldwide, right? So it's, it's uh, a CSA uh, role right now. Uh, that was something that, that kind of got in there. But, you know, 
what I like to tell people, right, is uh, you take a job uh, for two reasons, the type of work and the manager that you're going to be working for. And so really fantastic team that I'm working with right now. Um, and the work that we're doing right now, um, Global Impact has been uh, fantastic for myself to get that experience. And coming from a partner uh, place, I was able to contribute to uh, the team that I'm currently working on with one com worldwide commercial business uh, with helping us with how we align with partners, how we engage with partners, because I was very intimate with that space previously. Jeff, now you were uh, previously an MVP. You know, what made you, uh, you know, come on over to the dark side or join the mothership to say, so to speak? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, well, I think, um, you know, I, I had previously worked at a gold managed partner and in that role, my job was to wear many hats. The job was to sell to customers. It was to engage our delivery team uh, and support them and many times sit next to them and do the work with them. Um, and then on top of that, um, there was just this um, engagement and community and growth, right? And um, in the Northwest Florida area where I'm from, there's, you know, we range from Tampa all the way up to Atlanta, Atlanta over into Dallas and Houston and, and the market um, of opportunity that we connect with. So I got a lot of, um, uh, a lot of uh, experience with in the MVB community speaking at different sessions um, where we get invited from customers that we were working with or get invited from others who were in the team. And so the MVP program was uh, a staple from, for myself. I kind of think of it as like um, a way to challenge myself with public speaking and from a, a perspective of Toastmasters is like getting up and talking about the technology and getting in front of people we really have to understand it. You really have to understand the industry. Um, and so um, the MVP really prepared me for uh, the aspect of not just um, being really technical proficient, but also being able to communicate with people, um, those uh, core messages and uh, strategies for technology. Um, and then, you know, uh, when the opportunity rose with Microsoft, they were looking for um, in their team, they were looking for someone who could build practices. And that was something that I've done. Many partners that I worked for previously, starting with uh, managed service practice, Office 365 practice, Azure practice. So uh, it was a very natural transition to say, now that I've learned how to start these different practices and managing and uh, technology, how do I then help take that whole package and help um, partners to then um, build their own practices, right? So um, I'd, I'd like to say it's an amalgam of my career. It built me up for the opportunity to be able to jump in from that MVP uh, and start teaching uh, people what I learned my whole life, uh, professional life, uh, with building managed service practices and cloud-based practices. All right, now I'm going to ask a big question, so i got to remind you to try and hold this one to a minute because it could get big. Uh, you mentioned helping people and building practices and helping people get into Azure you know, worldwide. One of the ways that you're doing that, I know, is that you champion the cloud adoption framework inside of Microsoft and a lot of the enterprise landing zones that we're going to talk about a bit more later. Uh, so what, what does that cloud adoption framework look like for a customer? So cloud adoption framework is everything that a customer would need to adopt Azure um, and organize their business from the top down. So I think of that as starting from a CIO, a chief level operations officer, when you need to establish a cloud center of excellence, you need to make a plan for cloud adoption. You need to make sure that you include a strategy for how you're going to train your people and adopt certain tools. And then you actually have to get to the practice of building in the cloud and uh, what is the ready phase of the cloud adoption framework, which is where enterprise scale landing zone is. And then you build that muscle of managing it and operating it in an ongoing fashion. 
So those five phases that I just went through are the cloud adoption framework. And that's the target for um, the guide for a customer who is coming to Azure. Uh, we also have well-architected framework, which is more of a workload specific for uh, what I would uh, think of decentralized IT operations. And, and real quick, when you say this is the framework for people coming to Azure, are we, are we talking about anyone or is this more uh, geared towards small businesses that maybe don't have a, a big staff internally or, or is this Fortune 500 companies using these tools as well? Right. So like when I talked about WAF, I mentioned decentralized IT. Uh, there are customers who are using WAF with centralized IT. Um, WAF is uh, the well-architected approach to a workload that's coming to the cloud. Cloud adoption framework is... Um, where you need to not only think about the specific workload that you're migrating in Azure, but you also need to think about the overall business processes, the portfolio of technology that you have, and then how you would enable your company to adopt uh, Azure. And so certainly that is a, a broad spectrum of customers and the cloud option framework is very broad to help customers meet them where they are, whether small, medium or large, and then um, help them with design that journey uh, for bringing their um, business and, and operating on Azure. <laughs> we did it. That was perfect timing. <laughs> perfect timing. Just under the wire. Yeah. That <laughs> clock ran a long time ago, but I just feel bad. <laughs> I, I feel bad pressing it that landed. button. Yeah. So, all right. Well, uh, as Don mentioned, we're, we want to talk a little bit more about um, what those landing zone and, and uh, migrations and things look like. So let's get into our next segment, which is science and tech news. Stay tuned for science and technology. And now, back to the anchor desk. Thank you. So uh, the article we're looking at today is from azure.microsoft.com. Um, it's preparing for what's next, building landing zones for successful cloud migrations. And so Don was kind of giving me a little bit of an overview um, before you came on, Jeff. We were talking about, because I was asking, you know, what exactly are landing zones? How does that work? So can you kind of give us a little bit of background first, and then we can kind of get into the best way for people to use these tools? Yeah, so the story here, uh, the analogy is to a landing zone for um, a plane that is coming in to land or a helicopter that's coming in to land, right? So the landing zone idea or concept is that you would have a place to uh, land something, right? Uh, and so in technology, we use the landing zone terminology to mean when you are preparing an environment to receive a, uh, a, a an application or a workload, right? Um, so landing zones are the, uh, it can be a platform landing zone, meaning that it's like across Azure. Uh, it could be a landing zone that is specific to a workload like Windows Virtual Desktop. We talked about Christian uh, earlier where we're developing a landing zone for that. Um, and so this is kind of a, a deep rooted history uh, using this language with technology on the, the landing zone. Um, landing zone constructs uh, within technology typically rely around making sure requirements for identity, requirements for networking, um, requirements for storage are all met so that when you uh, start uh, your adoption process of moving those key workloads into Azure, um, you can uh, accelerate that process as well as meet uh, all of the functional requirements that you have. And so for uh, the enterprise scale landing zone, um, the goal for us is to solve three customer challenges. The first one is to eliminate the architectural complexity and provide clear decisions that you need to make along the way uh, of your cloud adoption. The second is to give security the control that they require so that uh, in the front of your adoption process, you have auditing um, and you have your security uh, configurations in place so we can meet the security, the InfoSec IT team 
um, with their requirements and give them a pool system that which they can uh, quickly deploy. And the, the third customer challenge is around a cloud operating model. So um, architecture itself is very great because it tells you how to set up and configure things within the cloud. What's more important is how your actual business process of deploying and managing uh, within the cloud, uh, what what your tactic or structure or style is going to be there. So though, so providing a cloud operating model, reducing architectural complexity, and providing the security that a customer would need in the start, those are the three objectives of the enterprise scale landing zone and uh, how we view uh, landing zones as a whole. And I, I definitely think you're saying all the right things there because I know for, for a, a developer, somebody's doing DevOps, a company even, if they're moving into the cloud the first time, there's a lot of moving pieces that if I'm deploying a web application, I likely have a web server running as an Azure VM, I have uh, an Azure database, a SQL server on Azure, Azure AD for authentication and uh, identity management, you know, all these different pieces, the, the storage objects, the security configuration. You can't just say, I'm gonna learn this one piece and start there. I'm, I'm just gonna learn Azure VMs and that's it. And then I'll expand out later on. It doesn't really work that way. You have to learn all the pieces at once. So with the enterprise landing zones, you guys are kind of taking care of that, right? You're deploying all those different pieces at once so somebody can get started really quick. One thing I'm curious about though is the cloud just by its nature is very flexible and every customer has different needs, different uh, design requirements. So how do you guys come up with these landing zones that, that meet the greatest need of customers? How do you know what people are gonna expect to use? I think the way that we start um with scoping is to say, how can we um, take a modular approach that when you make a decision, you don't have to go back and refactor. And that's a very hard, um, it's a very hard engineering uh, problem to solve. Um, uh, one of the things that you mentioned, uh, which you talked about archetype, uh, archetype neutral, right? Is that I'm not just focusing on VMs, but I'm looking at applications and data and security configurations as well. What you hit on there with archetype neutral is exactly how we approached the process of um, of building out the enterprise scale architecture and reference implementation which is the is, is to um, concrete ourselves within five principles and one of those principles is to be archetype uh, neutral right is is that we don't focus on IaaS or SaaS or pass because as just a platform we focus on the application and the application could be a series of servers, a series of web apps, a series of app services, functions, data warehouses, et cetera. It's normally gonna be an amalgam of those things, right? Um, and so we took the decision to make the, uh, we took the uh, imperative to create design guidelines. The first one is subscription democratization, right? Um, and in this uh, guideline, we say uh, a customer is creating subscriptions with an Azure, um, should use subscriptions and democratize them for workloads and shared services. So it's not a single subscription model. The second thing we do is we talk about Azure policy and we say Azure policy should be used as governance for guardrails so that your security configurations for things like having your Azure, um, all of your Azure activity logs to go directly into log analytics just happens when a subscription is, is deployed. So you're not thinking about configuration post subscription creation. You're thinking about the configuration in the start of the platform. And as subscriptions are pulled by new workloads or by new subsidiaries or um, whatever that scenario may be, that subscription once generated then um, receives the configuration for log analytics, security, connectivity, identity, and then is ready to be up and running and, and, and run a production workload. So so really a, a no cliff design 
and, and requires you to have principles. And so we've got subscription democratization, we've got policy-driven governance, we've got the archetype uh, neutral, uh, right? We have uh, no, um, th this concept around uh, making sure that we don't have any um, uh, gotchas in that operational model that I talked about, that cloud operation model. So um, if a, a, a customer is making changes in the portal, they can go in and grab that in their code base. If a customer makes changes in the code base, they can go and grab that in their portal. So it's it's maintaining uh, this this no cliff approach and really aligning ourselves to our design principles that helped us to be successful here. Um, and you got to draw you know some some hard lines in the sand um, when you do that. So it's a lot of lot of uh, great people and great minds um, in, in making that happen. Now, you mentioned production workload, right? So this is not like what I was saying, just getting started. You're not just dabbing your toe in. You're saying, I'm ready to move production workload in there. So do these landing zones, do they take into account more complex architectures like multi-region or multi-availability zone, that kind of thing? Yeah, so the enterprise scale landing zone is a platform landing zone that receives that receives the workload-specific um uh, workloads, uh, workloads specific, sorry, uh, the, um, uh, specific application, right? So when I say workload, I'm, I'm talking about, a, a an application. So if you think about it, things like SAP, they don't just have a front end, they have a back end, they have a middle tier. They may have some ancillary servers that have special plugins or integration. Um, when you think about AKS, many times AKS is talking to different services, right? Um, and, and, and so the, landing zone, the enterprise scale landing zone sets up the model that you would need to manage the platform. So you have a platform management group in Azure that has subscriptions underneath of it. And those subscriptions that uh, reside underneath that management group get the configuration um, for uh, things like um, when we talk about management, I talked about log analytics, but let's take another example, like with connectivity. With connectivity, we can actually, um, as a customer deploys a, a, a subscription uh, under a specific management group in Azure, we can have that automatically connect to a shared network environment in a VNet, and the application owner, or what we call the app ops team, would be able to create new subnets uh, for their application, but not necessarily VNets. That's a centralized IT function, a platform ops team. So we've got the platform ops and the app ops team, and they work in conjunction to fulfill the business needs. Um, and as you move from centralized IT to decentralized IT, you start seeing those boundaries between platform ops and app ops start to mingle. And remember, my app ops is also my VM managers, right? So it's not, we're not um, sticking to a specific archetype that's infrastructure as service or platform as service or SaaS as service. Um, we're bridging all of those together for whatever the customer's requirement is for the application. Jeff, I don't know if I trust any of this because I just noticed you're wearing an Apple watch and I feel like if you were a real Microsoft <laughs> person, there would be a Zune tied to your arm. Oh, is there a Zune? Oh, oh, oh what, what is wow. that? That's the Surface wow. Duo? Yeah. Wait, is that not out yeah. yet? Now you're like, whoa, whoa, cred how, the roof. How this guy get Straight that? Yeah. <laughs> it is out, right? It is out it's, it's just it incredibly is out. expensive. It is out. Oh, it's yep. expensive. That's yes. what it is. It's cost <laughs> prohibitive. Yeah, it's not out it's, for it's, me. <laughs> here's the thing I'll say about the duo. Um, so my mom recently had a heart surgery, and there were some meetings I absolutely had to be in. And I use this with Teams. There's a little camera right here. Loads Teams in two modes, wow. chat on the bottom, video on the top. And uh, I used it like heck uh, during that time with these 
surface earbuds. I thought you were going to, oh, nice, nice. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you could control a pacemaker with that, which would be really cool too. <laughs> but... No, those are locked down by government. You're not, smart, <laughs> you're not smart. supposed to mess what? with those. Yeah, I, don't know. I did ask a lot of questions when we got to that part, and that's that's exactly kind of what we went through. So that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like that thing doesn't have Bluetooth, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I asked a lot of questions. Yeah. Well, Is so, there an app uh, for that? No, there's not an app for this. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. Yeah. So uh, I, I know normally, uh, you know, Microsoft has a lot of events and stuff going on. I think you guys are all virtual through 2021, but uh, but you guys are kind of done for the season right now, right? You don't have anything until like spring next year? Yeah, we'll have some, we'll have, you know, we have web webinars coming out. We have um, a whole series of events. Something that was just launched on Channel 9 is the Enablement Show. So you can go to Microsoft Channel 9. We launched a series on Well-Architected Framework, um, as well as launched uh, a series on um, Azure Governance, uh, and the landing zone portions are included in there. So that, that actually just uh, launched last week or the week before. Um, uh, there we have more that's going to be coming out um, uh, as we get closer to Q, you know, the end of, end of this year. Um, but yeah, the, the, that's our main, you know, everything we're doing now is, is virtual. Um, everything that we're executing um, for our customers and help their businesses, you know, WVD is a, is a core component of that. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's kind of the the most top of mind when it comes to kind of what's coming down the pipe with uh, training et cetera, and, and um, yeah, and, and you shared um, some documentation with me as well uh, from uh, Microsoft Docs, the um, start with cloud adoption framework enterprise scale landing zones. Is that, uh, we'll, we'll put that in the description uh, on YouTube here as well, but is that kind of a, a great place for people to start to, you know, kind of understand this if, if they're not familiar with it too much? Right. So um, the enterprise scale landing zone is, is a core component of the cloud adoption framework. We're in the ready section of the cloud adoption framework um, under Azure landing zones. There's also a start small and expand. So, um, you know, we were speaking a little bit earlier about customers' needs and being able to um, being able to meet a customer where they are, whether they're a small business or a large business, or maybe they just have a different cloud adoption approach. And so we've really, that's one place I could call it specifically within the ready uh, section of the cloud option framework in our Azure landing zones, we have to start small and expand and we have enterprise scale landing zone um, and two different uh, approaches uh, for a customer who um, has different requirements. Perfect. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your day uh, to educate us on, uh, on landing zones and all, and all that great stuff. Yeah, it's great, guys. Good to be here. All right. Uh, everybody stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break, come back with more Technado with Don Pizzette right after this break. This is Josh. Josh spent $2,500 on a week of classroom training for CompTIA A+, and got certified. Josh got a good job that pays $40,000 per year. This is Jeremy. Jeremy only spent $299 on a full year of training from IT Pro TV, including A and 300 other courses. Jeremy also got a great job that pays $40,000 per year. Jeremy used the more than $2,200 he saved on IT training for a fabulous tropical vacation. Now, Jeremy is still using his IT Pro TV membership to study for Network Plus and Security Plus to advance his career, but not spending any more money. Since all three are included in his IT Pro TV membership plus 300 more courses. Don't be like Josh. Choose IT Pro TV for your IT training. All right, welcome back to TechNado with Don Pizzette. And I keep keep getting confused thinking I'm looking at Clark Kent over here, not Don Pizzette because you got the glasses on, but uh, 
you're, you still have your powers? No, I've learned that if you wear glasses, people just assume you're smart. You don't have to study anymore. It's been working for me for years. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I got LASIK. People were getting so confused thinking that I was smart. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's just now the glasses. Are. Well, thank you so much to Jeff Mitchell for joining us and uh, teaching us all about uh, landing zones and, and that great stuff with Azure. Um, definitely very cool, and, and we'll have him back on when we have some more announcements in the spring for sure. Um, but first, let's uh, go ahead and get into our news articles. We've got our first one from TheVerge.com. Prolonged AWS outage takes down a big chunk of the internet. AWS has been experiencing an outage for hours. And this was uh, back on November 25th, kind of when this was happening. And, and, but this is just a whole commercial for Azure today, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> sort of. So uh, this is a big deal, right, for a few yeah. different reasons. But uh, you know, anytime AWS has an outage it is a big deal, right? But when it has an outage right before Black Friday, the biggest mm. sales day of the year leading into Cyber Monday, like that's a huge, huge thing. And so when they, they went down, they, they were down for uh, like a solid two hours having big problems. And then like little problems carried on for a few more hours before it was all cleaned up uh, after about four hours total. So uh, it's a big deal. And the, the lesson that we get out of this is actually kind of an important one. So that's why I wanted to talk about it today is they've had time now to analyze what happened. And a problem they had was with the AWS Kinesis service. Uh, Kinesis is a basically like a giant fire hose of data. You can dump tons of data in there and it handles it. And they use it for a number of different things and they use it themselves. So Amazon uses AWS Kinesis for a lot of their stuff. And they were trying to get ready for Black Friday and they were wanting to scale their systems out to add more uh, muscle behind the technology to make sure it could withstand the load they were about to hit. Well, as they started scaling out, things went crazy and Kinesis basically stopped working. And or at least in the U.S. East one region. So there's one particular data center, but that is the biggest of the data centers, the default that everybody uses. And when that went down, it was almost a comedy of errors after that because Amazon's service status page depends on Kinesis for updates. And so they couldn't update their service <laughs> status page to let people know that Kinesis was broken. And this isn't the first time that's happened. Uh, Amazon has just insisted on maintaining their own service status page on their own hardware, which is not something other companies do. Yeah, that's so. kind of ironic. You can't say you know that your site's down if your site's down. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, uh, a marketing issue uh, where... On one hand, you want to be able to tell your customers the service is down. But on the other hand, you don't want to use a competitor's product to host the service. So, you know, they say, oh, by using our own hardware, we're testifying that it's great, that it's not going to go down, that we'll always be able to update it. And they did have a manual process, but it turns out nobody was really trained in the manual process for updating it. So it took them hours just to admit that they had an outage, which was a big problem. So you mentioned the East Coast zone. And so that's what I was curious about, because, I mean, to me, what, what I understand about the, the benefit of being in the cloud is, well, if this zone goes down, the next one picks it back up. And obviously things might be yeah. slower because I'm getting my data from further and more people are accessing different zones. But w w were things technically down across the board? So in, in AWS, and this goes for Azure as well, you have availability zones and you have regions, and mm -hmm. those are different things. So a region is usually like a geographic region. It's like Europe or... Well, it's a little more specific. So like there's US East, oh, okay. which is a, a location in North Virginia. Uh, or Northern Virginia. We don't actually have a North Virginia state. So <laughs> get one yeah. in Northern Virginia, uh, near Washington, D.C., basically, there is the U.S. East region. And in the U.S. East region, you have multiple availability zones. I think there's five, maybe six altogether now, uh, availability zones. Now, if one AZ goes down, the others stay up. 
But services like Kinesis spread across availability zones. And so they went down for that whole region. If you had resources in US West or US East 2, you were fine. But if you're in US East 1, you had an outage. And US East 1 is the default. So if you don't specify a region, that's the one you end up in. And so it's heavily used by a lot of people. Uh, and so you know, it turns out one way to dodge the bullet on this one is if you've just chosen uh, a different alternative. That was one of the things I was wondering. You kind of answered it, Don. Is uh, how was you know how uh, a single zone, region like that would affect so many, yep. such a large portion of the internet. I mean, these are big companies. Roku is out. Uh, yeah. Uh, who else? I mean, you you think Tampa Bay Times is another one that's out there. I mean, these are big companies, and for a single um, zone to fail like this, yeah. and it affect everybody. Adobe iRobot, people's mm-hmm. uh, people's Roombas stopped uh, phoning home. They couldn't control their Roomba. <laughs> yeah, madness. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing is, you know, with Amazon, one of the things they always tell you is that you should scale out, not up, mm-hmm. right? If I have a server that's getting under load, I could add more CPUs to it or add more RAM, but there's a limit that you hit. But if you scale out, you can add as many instances as you want and increase your muscle. Well, what happened here is a classic DevOps scenario where you have developers who understand their software, they understand their technology, but they don't understand the underlying operating system. And so with Kinesis, Kinesis uses thousands of servers, but all of the servers need to know about each other. So they have these threads that are open that connect each one to each other. Well, every server you add, adds another thread. And this runs on top of Linux and they had a maximum thread count set. And when they hit that maximum thread count, it, went to hell. Like the whole Mm. system went crazy. And the solution was to go in and reboot, but their automation tools are wrapped up in Kinesis too. And they couldn't use those. They had to do manual reboots of thousands of servers. And their solution in the end was to scale up instead of scaling out. So it's Mm. kind of ironic, you know, it's going against this advice they've given everybody for a long time, Uh, but they are scaling up now to be able to handle more threads that way. You just require less threads because their servers are able to do more work. So it's a, it's a bit of a lesson for a lot of people to learn is DevOps is dangerous in some scenarios if you don't understand the limitations of the operating system running underneath your software. I wonder in the future if we'll see a change on what that default is being default East like that, if we'll see that spread out a little bit more. Yeah, there's not really a whole lot of reasons why you couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, you know, it used to be that some services were only available in certain regions, but Amazon's done a good job of leveling the playing field across it. So unless you're deploying somewhere weird, like in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. you know, or, or in Brazil, now you've got some limited features. But if you're deploying in the U.S. or Europe, it's pretty much feature parity. Brazil is weird. You heard it here first. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned Roomba, though, because I realized now, and I, I just checked the date to be sure. On Wednesday, I was like driving somewhere, and I said, oh, I should set the Roomba so I can, uh, it'll be clean when I get home. And it kept saying, unavailable connect to the network. Yeah. And I'm like, I have to be home for this tour? I thought I've done this before. Yeah. And I thought I was just done. So you don't even realize how many systems depend on AWS. And so, you know, there you just probably blamed uh the I blamed robot, robot. Yeah, yeah exactly and uh well i blamed myself for not <laughs> understanding it but now I'm, I'm happy to know it wasn't just me um and thanks amazon for making sure i didn't come home to a clean house <laughs> <laughs> all right our next article is from zdnet.com windows 10 microsoft reveals pluton security chip expect patch tuesday type updates and so don i'm confused about this one because we're talking about a chip but we're talking about Patch Tuesday, yep. uh, like updates. And, and I know those don't involve me going and getting something and sticking it into my computer, but I think that's what a chip is. So where am I confused here? 
Yep. So, uh, you know, we have a whole generation now of field programmable chips. Uh, what, Wes, you know, it's FPGA. FPGA, yep. And it's field uh, programmable array. Gateway array? The gateway array. There we go. That's it, yeah. All right. yep. So, it, Wes is my acronym guy. So, <laughs> so these are, are, you know, chips that basically you can program them for special use purposes, and you can change them on the fly. You can reprogram, and that's a really useful thing in certain scenarios. They, they use the hell out of them in uh, AI and, and other places like that. Mm-hmm. Well, one area where we're seeing a real problem right now is in the management technologies built into CPUs, right? So with Spectre and Lockdown and these attacks that are happening inside of CPUs, and even some attacks that have been focused on the management engine that's found inside of every Intel processor these days, and what can you do about it? Nothing. Nothing, right? Can't update it. It's mm-hmm. in the CPU. And Intel, they do a good job making CPUs, but they're not a security company. Uh, you know, their their foray into security was acquiring McAfee. So you see when that gets them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so you know, there's this this management engine that you ha- really have no visibility into, no control over, and you can't update it. And Microsoft said that's not the way that things should be. And so they actually created a chip. They used it uh, first in their Xbox 360. So this has been around for years now, where it's a security chip that sits outside of the processor. And they're able to maintain integrity of all the software running in the CPU's memory, in in user land, in kernel space, everywhere. And malicious code is blocked and prevented from running, any unsigned applications and so on. And because it's a programmable chip, they can update it if they find something that's wrong. And they're actively maintaining it and doing that. And it's been deployed for years in these Xbox consoles. So now they're bringing it to other platforms. Then they've reached an agreement with Intel to actually start building this Pluton chip into Intel CPUs. Kind of, I I don't know if it's actually going to replace the management engine, makes sense if it would, or if it's going to supplement it. Either way would work. Uh, But we're going to start seeing it there, and they're already in talks with ARM and AMD to be able to get it in places there. So hopefully this will bring about a a new way where we don't have to sacrifice performance for security like we're doing right now to protect from Spectre and Meltdown. You know, I know we have other technologies that have been in place for a long time, Don, and I'd wonder where those technologies are going to lie. I think of things like the no-execute bit, you know, protected Mm -hmm. area areas of memory that we have now we've got address space randomization we've got the tpm you know i mean we've got tpms and we've had them for yeah. a while now it almost seems like now the cpu's got its own tpm that can practice or it can protect what's going maybe not necessarily the configuration state of the trusted operating system but actually what's going on inside of the cpu at that time yeah absolutely and and you've got a company like microsoft that's focused on maintaining the the security and integrity of that chip uh you know apple does the same thing apple has their security chip uh which i'm forgetting the name of is it the t1 t2 i think it's the t2 security chip now uh so apple's kind of done this but they haven't made it open for anybody else to use they just use it on their hardware microsoft's going a little different opening it up for everybody to use but we'll just see how the adoption rates go on it but i expect to see more of it over the next few years so this is not something that's in any computers yet, but you know, besides like Xboxes, like you said. But uh, uh, coming I soon, I believe a- they announced that it was in at least one computer. Um, shoot, I'd have to dig and see. I, yeah, it is definitely something we'll see more of but in it, yeah. the future. It's yeah. not a wide release yet. No, no. anything. Okay. Very cool. We'll keep an eye out for that. And speaking of chips, let's move on to our next article from Ars Technica. Linus Torvalds debut, or excuse me, doubts Linux will get ported to Apple M1 hardware. Quote, I absolutely love to have an M1 laptop if it just ran Linux, Torvald said. So, Don, why is this, what's stopping it from coming over to the, to the new chip? All right, so Apple switched to the ARM instruction set for their devices. Now, I, I think we talked about this in the previous week, that yeah. they didn't switch to ARM processors, 
they switched to ARM-compatible processors. They're their own in-house built uh, proprietary CPUs, these M1 CPUs, but they use the ARM instruction set to communicate. Now, Linux runs on numerous ARM architectures that are out there. And so if Linux will already run on ARM, obviously it would run on the new M1 MacBooks, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it won't. And there's a few reasons for that. And a lot of people are looking at it saying, well, it's just a matter of time before they port it over. Linus Torvalds came out and said he's not going to put any effort into it. And some people think it's just that he doesn't want to do that or that it's some kind of anti-Apple thing. But there is actually a more complex side to the back end of this. Mm -hmm. You know, the CPU is just one part of a computer. You have a lot of other things, like that, that T2 security chip I mentioned a moment ago, right? That's outside of the CPU. It's 100% Apple proprietary, and they do not release an API for you to interact with it. And so if you want to port Linux over to a MacBook, you don't just have to support the CPU. You have to support all this other hardware that's in there, and it's next to impossible. And so while it is possible to port Linux over, it's very, very difficult and very unlikely that you'll get a good computing experience out of it. So if you're going to spend two, $3,000 on a MacBook and then run a, a app, uh, an operating system on there where only half your hardware works, that, that's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. And so that's what Linus is saying is that the way that it is right now, it just doesn't make sense to run Linux on the new MacBooks. You know, Don, and I was actually in that camp. I thought it was just Linus saying, no, I, I don't really feel like coding that to the CPU, but then you made me aware there's a lot more holistic pieces that yeah. are running in the background that you have to get coded to make anything work on that. Yeah, and, and we'll likely see more laptops and desktops come out with ARM processors. We're already seeing a few. There's crappy ones like the Pinebook, but then there'll be you know good ones eventually. And when that happens, yeah, we'll, we'll see Linux running on those. You've got Raspberry Pis with ARM processors, and you run Linux on those. So, you know, it, it will happen. It's just not likely going to be the M1. It would be just as likely as running Linux on an iPhone. And people don't do that because, again, most of the hardware just won't work, so there's no point in doing it. Is it Linus, not Linus? It is Linux, yes. No, his name? Oh, his name is It depends is on where Linus. he is in the world. It's Linus, Linus, Linus. Oh, does he? Yeah, he, I, I've, I've seen an interview, and he says, depends on where I am. <laughs> All right, so. Well, there you go. Don't blow Apparently, me up in the comments. if you don't call him late for dinner, you're fine. Okay, perfect. <laughs> All right, our next article is over at thehackernews.com. Two-factor authentication bypass flaw reported in cPanel and WHM software. I was told that two-factor, multi-factor is solves impenetrable. All and problems. It solves everything. Could, uh, never fail. So uh, what happened here? How did this one fail? All right, so cPanel, if you're not familiar with it, uh, is used by a lot of hosting providers. So, for example, if you buy service uh, like a, a hosted virtual server with Media Temple or Rackspace or you know some provider like that, they will likely give access to cPanel or Plesk or you know one of those platforms. But cPanel is one of the bigger ones, which allows you to administer your server. If you want to reboot your server, you can do that through cPanel. If you want to install some software on your server, update your server, you can do it through cPanel. Works with Windows and Linux and so on. So this is administrative level access to a server, obviously something you want to protect. You don't want somebody getting into cPanel. cPanel has your backups. It can export data, so you can exfiltrate information. Definitely something you want to protect. And so it, of course, supports multi-factor authentication. However, in their implementation, they require a username and a password. And then after you punch in the password, it then prompts for a code. And on the field for the code, they did not set a rate limit or a maximum retry account, which uh -oh. means... Brute force attack. There you go, yeah, Wes. Absolutely. 
And so basically attackers were able to focus on that. If they had an administrator's credentials, username and password, they could then brute force the uh, multi-factor code and just throw it out. You know, it's usually six digits mm -hmm. or eight digits. So mm -hmm. how long does it take to run through six or eight digits? An hour, two hours, and then they were in. So that's a big deal. They're patching it and pushing it out. But the the nature of the tool, cPanel is such a, a powerful administrative tool. It's super dangerous. Does this, does this mean our two-factor codes are now going to have like ampersands and... Yeah. No, that so the, <laughs> the code strength isn't the problem. Okay. It's you know they should have said, hey, three failures and you're locked out. That's yeah. right. And and a rate limit, like you can mm -hmm. only send one every second or something. Yep. So thank God. I'm like, is that an I or a one or you a figure lowercase? They say, L? They're saying seventy million domains. That is a lot oh, yeah. of traction. Yeah, cPanel is huge. Yeah. Well, it was cPanel and WHM software. Is that the, the same kind of? No, web host manager. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's the same type of software, it's just a different just package. A different one. Yeah, okay. cPanel is designed for uh, ISPs and service providers to run. Uh, WHM, I believe, is the one that's designed for like private companies mm -hmm. to run. So just very similar products. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, glad that is resolved and don't have to worry about that anymore. Our, <laughs> wait, no, we do. We still have to worry about it. Uh, I mean, they fixed it. If you're in an environment that uses cPanel, you need to make sure you update. Okay. Yeah. Got it. There you go. I don't. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Our next article Sorry. is from ZDNet.com. A hacker is selling access to the email accounts of hundreds of C-level executives. Access is sold for $100 to $1,500 per account, depending on the company size and exec role. So this is uh, finally a, a bit of good news for poor people, I think, that they're not <laughs> caught up in this. They're not affected. <laughs> but this is cool. You could you could potentially go and buy your boss's information specifically. If it, you know they're selling it yeah. $100 a head, hey, that, that could be helpful. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the reasons why I grabbed this article is a lot of people wonder how much do hackers actually make off of the data that they steal mm -hmm. and this is one of those chances where we get a little bit of visibility into it so uh, hackers pull off spear phishing attacks where they're able to get the credentials for executives and then once they've got those credentials they turn around and sell them on the dark web mm -hmm. and they're getting between a hundred dollars and fifteen hundred dollars depending on the size of the company which means for a massive company let's just assume the biggest they're getting $1,500 per account. Now, what Peter mentioned is I can go and buy my boss's uh, credentials. That's true, but they don't just sell these things once and that's it. They just sell them over and over mm. and over again. And likely they're invalidated very, very quickly. So they're really making $1,500 for send, selling invalidated credentials after the first one. But they do resell them over and over at, and over. At those kind of prices, I figured it was like a, a one-off thing because I, I know you can buy credentials for... You know, pennies are you know on the dark web. I would think that that are the ones that are reused over and over. Are these just higher because of the title associated with it. Yeah, I, you know, if if I want to do a business email compromise, if mm -hmm. I want to reroute payment from the accounts payable department, I don't need a network admin's account. I need the CEO's account. Yeah, and I can say, hey, I'm authorizing this wire transfer to this account. Well, the CEO said it. it's here in writing. That's that's the thing. Uh, and then you just have to remember that these people are criminals. Mm, and true. so they have no qualms with no reselling over and over and over again. Even once the credentials, if they know they're bad, they'll still sell them because they can make money. So kind of uh, going back to the hack that happened on Twitter, it ultimately it was just Bitcoin. But that that hacker could have taken all those credentials, put them on the dark web and started selling making money. Yeah, yeah, basically. And mm. And so let's say uh, one of those uh, OG accounts, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, yep. I forget some of the shorter ones they were using, but let's say it's a, the letter A, so mm -hmm. at A. Yep. They might sell that to you, and then Peter comes along and says, hey, I want to buy at A. And so then they just override you and sell it to him. Like, there you, uh, go. you know, there's not a whole lot of 
honor and there's no warranty. These, these are criminals. No honor amongst thieves. <laughs> <laughs> That's sad. If I yeah, if I want to buy you know at Joe Biden or whatever, I should get that exclusively if I'm willing to pay a premium. That's, there you go. That's right. <laughs> Maybe that'll be in the consumer bill of rights soon. Yeah, I'm sure California has already made a law about that to make that uh, illegal. So, all right, well, very cool. Hey, um, we've got a lot of fun stuff going on right now. The uh, the most fun to me right now is our 12 days of IT, which is where we're unboxing 12 different items over uh, 12 days, and then we are giving them away on the 12th day. And so, if you head over to itpro.tv slash 12 days, you can sign up to win uh, any or all, probably just any, because I don't think you're going to get more than one uh, of those items. And uh, so far, we've seen, uh, let's see, a TP-Link wireless uh, travel router, uh, the YubiKey 5C NFC, um, a uh, cable tester for USB and uh, and RJ45 cables, and uh, and you did Wes the. Um, HDMI KVM switch uh, that That's just right. went up today. So uh, a lot of cool stuff available and uh, a lot more to come. Let's see what that's for. So we've got eight more items still uh, still set to come out. Plenty of time to still get in there and enter to win. And then we're going to do a uh, YouTube live on December 11th at 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern time where you can uh, check all that out as well and see if you've won. So head over to itpro.tv slash 12 days. Uh, also got a cool webinar coming up very soon uh, on Thursday, December 10th. So next week, how to make vSphere 7.0 work for you. Upgrade to the latest version uh, or the latest release from VMware. Adam Gordon, Gordon is going to be doing that. Excuse me. Uh, so... Sign up for that at itpro.tv slash webinars, and you can also head over there and see all of the archived webinars that are available for you to watch on demand as well at itpro.tv slash webinars. And finally, head over to go.itpro.tv slash technado where you can get a coupon code for 30% off your personal subscription for the lifetime of your account. And, uh, you know, as long as you keep it active, you're getting that great rate locked in. You can also request a team uh, trial and, and information for uh, teams to see all the cool features available when you have a team of uh, two to a thousand people. Um, that's all available at go.itpro.tv slash technado. I have a feeling if you had a thousand and one people, we'd still... Um, give you those features as well I think. probably yeah we could, <laughs> we could talk about it well thank you so much Wes for uh for filling yeah, in yeah absolutely thanks for having me here this is fun I I feel like Daniel has to earn his spot back now <laughs> yeah we we really have now recognized how dispensable he is it's, it, it just feels like a more mature episode doesn't it oh well don't go that far <laughs> I mean, it's a little low bar. Yeah. We're, talking, we're talking about Daniel here, but, but you know that. So thank you, and uh, and thank you so much as well to Jeff Mitchell for joining us, and uh, and check out all those links in the uh, description so you can uh, see all the cool features that he was talking about. But thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we'll see you next week right here on Technado with Don Pazette. <laughs>